Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. What we're going to do is we're going to wrap up our series on the Bible this week. And just before I dive into this, I want to just give you a quick disclaimer um, that we're going to be talking a lot about history tonight, a lot about um, the history of the Bible, how we got our English Bible and things like that. Um, if you've missed any of the older messages and want to catch up on a lot of the, the historical evidence for the Bible, you can go back and catch those on uh, Facebook or YouTube. <clears throat> Excuse me, you can rewatch those messages. They're out there and available for you. They'll be up on the podcast soon. But we are, um, this week we're going to deal with how, we're, how we got the English Bible. So let me say two things kind of as a disclaimer. Number one, the English Bible is not any better than any other Bible. So it's not like, you know, it's elevated above some other, some other language, you know, of the Bible has been translated. And it's not anything above. It's just we're dealing with it specifically for us because we speak English. So it's why it's the benefit for us. We're going to deal with that tonight. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about um, the history of the church, which is going to wander into the history of the Catholic Church. Now, if you're a Catholic person, you came from Catholicism, you have Catholic friends or family or anything like that, this is not me coming for their neck, all right? It's not me coming for them. Um, this is just the history of the church when it was all one organism. There was no denominations. There was no anything else like that. And the Catholic church was the one that kind of rose to prominence um, as it was established through the government of Rome, okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about um, what happened when all of the church's power was consolidated in one place. And um, so some of that is not very pretty. So um, if, if, you, if you come out of Catholicism, you know a Catholic friend, if you're watching online and you're Catholic or, you know, kind of, kind of trying to figure out what you believe, I'm not coming at the Catholics here per se. I'm just going to deal with a little bit of history on how the English Bible came into existence for us and their role in it. Okay? <clears throat> All right. So... Why is it important, the first, it's number one in your notes, why is it important to have the Bible in our own language? Language. Now, you might say, um, you might say, well, this is a no-brainer, Matt, because I need to read it, right? Like, I need to be able to have it, to read it in my own, uh, read it by myself. And you would be correct, but I'm going to dial it back to the 1400s and the 1500s, and we're going to, and that was not the case for the people who lived during that time frame. Okay? So, why is it important to have the Bible in our own language? Now, um, let me pause real quick. With all of your notes tonight, there's a three by five card um, that's been passed out. We started this last week, and we'll continue to do this for a little while. Uh, if you want to, uh, if you have a question about the message or about something we're going over tonight, you can write it down. We'll collect those at the end and uh, we'll, we'll address them and answer your questions if you have any from the message, okay? So just feel free to write it down. You can leave it anonymous if you want to, um, and we can, we'll answer them at the end. So in the 14 and 1500s, the ease of having a Bible, um, that, that the same ease that we have a Bible today, how many Bibles you got at home? Anybody? A lot? Like more than four, five, ten? They're on shelves and bookshelves, a couple of them in storage, one on your nightstand, one underneath it, one underneath the bed somewhere that you forgot about, right? So they're all over the place. 
we have an abundance of ability to read the Bible and a bunch of translations and all that kind of stuff, right? That is a wild, wild privilege. And when I was in church, I never knew any of this. When I was raised in church as a kid, I never heard any of this. And so this is hopefully going to astound you and convict you the same way it's astounded and convicted me diving into it and studying it. So in the 14 and 1500s, um, and long before that, there was one church. There's no denominations, there's no Baptist, there's no Lutheran, there's no Methodist, there's no Episcopal church, there's none of that. It's only the church, and it's the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, if you don't know anything about it, has a lot of structure, right? The guy at the top of the Catholic Church, what, who is he? The Pope, right? There's the Pope, and then there's the cardinals, and the bishops, and the priests, and on down the line. And, and um, these guys, up until this point, because you couldn't have a Bible on your own and in your own language, they controlled the messaging that went out to the people. There was a lot of power that people wanted, to con that they wanted to keep for themselves. And this power um, was very enticing for the government and for the church leaders. Anybody ever heard the statement, absolute power corrupts absolutely? Anybody ever heard the statement, questionable, uh, leaders who can't be questioned to wind up doing questionable things? All these are going to come into play during the Catholic Church in this time period and in the government. Now, you, you might still feel a little bit like, Matt, I'm picking on the Catholic Church. No. If it was called the Baptist Church back then, it would have been the same thing. Because you'll see that when power is involved in controlling other people and you have to come to me to understand what the Bible says, things get messed up in a hurry. So what happens is these, these, the, the Catholic um, Church controls the narrative of what's being spoken. Because you can't have a Bible in your own language, the Catholic Church made sure it was only in one specific language, and you couldn't read it. And you had to go to them to hear what it said every Sunday. And they began to justify and work in cahoots with and in the back rooms with the government. So, hey guys, we need the people to pay taxes. And we need them to not fight us on it. And they go to the, the government goes to the church leaders, and the church leaders begin to preach on, hey, it's good to pay your taxes. No matter if they go up to 80, 90%, you just keep paying them. So that in that way, the church works at the, for, the, for the good of the government. And then inversely, hey guys, we need to keep our power in the church, so you need to start making laws that it's illegal to own a Bible in your own language. And they passed laws that did that. These church leaders and political leaders got together and decided that they would serve themselves rather than God and the people because they wanted to keep the power. They were living wildly immoral lives, and there's no, there's no phones to record when you catch somebody doing something stupid, right? There's no text messages or posting it up online. It just has to go through word of mouth. And I'm going to read off a couple of things that from this time period, the 14 and 1500s, that the popes did. These guys who were supposed to be the quote-unquote vicar of Christ. They're supposed to hear the voice of God for the church and be the voice of God 
uh, from the church or of the church to the world. That's where they're supposed to be. Priests are not supposed to be married, not supposed to have kids, all that kind of stuff, right? This is uh, crazy. All this information came out of a book called um, A Handbook on the Papacy. And uh, the things that they did here were wild, wild, wild. Okay? And you might say, what does this have to do with anything? You're going to find out how corruption led to power that wanted to prevent you today from having a Bible in your hand. We'll start with um, Pope Sixtus IV. I think that's personally funny. That might be the math nerd brain in me, right? But this is the fourth number six. It's really weird. Sixtus IV. 1471, he established businesses. You might think, oh, an entrepreneur. Thinking out of the box, he's going to start businesses. He's going to try to help, you know, the, the church be established in the community and start working for the betterment of everybody. But the only problem was the kind of businesses he established. The businesses he established were houses of prostitution in Rome. Think about that for the second. The number one guy of the Catholic Church, the Pope, who's supposed to be speaking to the world on behalf of the church and, on, and to the church on behalf of God, the vicar of Christ is what they call him. They, they, they um, draw a line between Peter and every pope that ever, list, that ever lived. All of these guys, all of these guys are supposed to be the one giving direction for the church, and this guy establishes houses of prostitution in Rome. He, his his uh, papal reign was 1471 to 1484. And in 1484, the next one comes along, and his name was Innocent VIII. He did not live up to his name because he had seven illegitimate children who he enriched from the church's treasure. Let me put that in today's vernacular for you. Homie had a whole bunch of baby mamas, Seven, seven, seven kids from them little baby mama interactions. And he went to the church bank account and paid his child support and made sure they were living it up on the church's dime. Anybody else repulsed yet? This one gets better. The guy after him, Alexander VI. He lived with a Spanish lady and her daughter and reveled in the grossest form of debauchery. I, I'm going to just kind of on the fly edit what, this, what was in this book, but even this guy wouldn't say all the things this pope did. That was crazy. The accounts of some of the indecent activities that took place in the presence of the pope and his daughter are too bestial for repetition. The guy who gathered the history on this particular pope refused to even write down the crazy things that he did. He had five kids. His favorite son, Caesar, uh, began murdering family members, including his brother and brother-in-law. Now, I have a brother, and we've sure at some point in my life I'd have been like I'm gonna kill you bro like you got you know how you say that between you know between siblings yeah this guy he, he really did it this blend of church and state is one of the major reasons the Puritans the pilgrims and Columbus left England 
to come here. And one of our laws is the separation of church and state, which doesn't mean you have to keep God out of the politics, the influence of religion and the government. It means you cannot com uh, collaborate together to create laws that control people to do your bidding. Notice that Alexander VI, the, the real good guy here that we couldn't even say all the things he did, 1492 is when he started, and Columbus basically said, I've had enough of this, I'm out. And they bounced. They began right after this, the construction of a 1,000 room palace that today sits in the Vatican. 1,000 rooms. So how in the world did they get away with all this, right? Because you and I got questions, right? I got all kinds of questions after reading that. Like, bro, how are you getting away with that? How do you keep all that covered up? Because these guys over here are working with these guys, and these guys underneath them start to find out stuff, and they got to start trading favors. And it gets wildly messy, and everybody's covering up for the lives of everybody else. And the people... Are paying the price. Next sign in your notes. Many church leaders lived immoral lifestyles, <laughs> that's an understatement, and justified it by twisting scripture. By twisting scripture. You and I would be able to go to our Bible today, open it up, and be like, hey, this ain't right, bro. Look right here what it says, but they didn't have the scripture in their hand, in their language. They had to go to the church. They had to go to the priest to hear what the Bible said. See how this problem is beginning to develop? Next on your notes, the Bible was presented by the Catholic church leaders in Latin. In Latin. Today we consider Latin a dead language, but one of the goals or one of the, the, the training mechanisms for the Catholic Church and for their priests was that they had to speak Latin. They could only use the Latin translation, the, the Vulgate, Latin Vulgate, as the one they would preach from, which already had problems and errors in it. And so let's imagine for a second, you don't know what the Bible says. You have to come in here every week and hear it from me, and I'm not allowed to read it to you in English. I can only read it in Latin and then explain to you what it says, and you got to take my word. That's how the structure was during this time frame. How did they get away with it? Because they commissioned the people that were here in the pulpit to preach in a way that would lighten the moral responsibility on the leaders but put a heavier burden on the people it's jacked up huh and still today some of that still happens oh not just in the catholic church and all of them because as the culture continues to influence the church instead of the other way around people like the power even if it's only for a small group of people. They listen to me. They got to come to me. They got to do what I say. I'm given the direction here. And they become their own little version of God in those instances. Next on your notes. 
they being the priests, the priests were the only ones who could read the language, so only they could tell the people what the Bible said. This was used as a form of control. Form of control. We're going to keep going. In 1408, translating the Bible into English was considered a capital fence, offense that could result in death. How in the world does the government get involved in telling the church people, you can't translate the Bible? Why does the government care? Because behind the scenes, they're working hand in hand with the church leaders. These laws became even more and more burdensome. The next three bullet points there in your notes. It was also illegal to not to just translate one, but possess an English translation of the Bible. If you ran across somebody who had one, you didn't translate it and you took it, you were then guilty of a crime. The next bullet point, it was illegal to have any books printed about the Bible. Somebody wanted to write a commentary on the book of John or the book of James, couldn't do it. It was also illegal to have children recite the Lord's Prayer in English. You couldn't teach your kids the Lord's Prayer to recite it during bedtime or throughout the day or major events or any moments that you wanted to pray to remember God. You couldn't have your own kids recite the Lord's Prayer in English. So, one major advantage to having the Bible in our own language is we do not need anyone else to learn about God. You don't need anybody else to learn about God because the Bible is in your language and in your house and in your hands today. And if you don't have one, come see me. I will give you one or show you where you can download the free one on the app. Matt, I'm not good at reading. That's no problem because they recorded it all in audio and it'll play it for you for free. Matt, I can't listen to things that long. That's okay. There's a guy who they put it in a form of a movie who reads it. Matt, I'm deaf. You can have a Braille Bible. There is every kind of Bible available for you to consume it, regardless of your preference, regardless of your limitation, whatever it is, it is available for you. Now, why is it important that you don't have to go to anybody else to learn about God? 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. Who does this say the mediator between us and God is? Who's the mediator? Based on that scripture, who is it? Jesus, right? Okay, so let me run a hypothetical. Let me give you a picture here for it. We're going to pretend here that Sonny, right here, raise your hand up, Sonny. There you go. Raise Sonny. Sonny is going to represent God. Okay? 
I am the people who need to be reconciled to him, right? And let's say Rashad stands in the middle of us as Jesus. Jesus is our link. Faith in Christ reconciles us to God. What happens is, in this case, the church was saying, oh no, you can't even learn about Jesus except through us. You don't even know what he says because you can't read it because we're the ones who are the arbiters of truth. We're the ones who are going to present the Bible to you and you have to do what we say. And you have no idea if it's real or not. And they positioned themselves as a mediator in the middle. If I, as a minister, as a pastor, ever do this, if you're ever in a church later in life, if God moves you on, if 25 years from now you're still at RCC and, I, and I, I'm done, I'm out, you know, I'm in my 60s and transfer, handed over to somebody else, whoever stands here, wherever you go, as far as a church pastor context, if someone tries to become the mediator between you and God, you just run. Don't even wait to the end of the message. Pack up all your stuff, grab your purse, your backpack, your kids, hide your kids, hide your wife, get up and just walk right out the door. And you can wave at them if you want to leave or just walk right out. Where are you going? We want you to come back. And then leave. Because there is one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus, it's not me. If anyone stands behind a mic and or and and, and who has the the role the responsibility of pastor or minister and says oh god really means this for you and comes up with some crazy thing and tells you you don't have to read the bible because i'm doing it for you he's trying to become the mediator he's trying to take jesus's spot and my friends, that's not a place you want to be. Likewise, do not look at any man, any minister, any pastor, as that's the guy who's talking to God on my behalf. That is all done. All of that is done. When the veil tore in uh, the tabernacle, when Jesus died... The Spirit of God no longer resided with the Ark of the Covenant. The Spirit of God now resides in the ones who have faith in Christ. He's in you. So what's my job as a pastor? Well, what my first job is, is I'm a brother in Christ to you. All I'm saying to all of you is, hey... Have you guys talked to dad this week? Have you read the letter he sent you? Because when I'm reading, I'm looking at a lot of this, and I, I feel compelled by dad to share with these things to you, not so you look at me and go, that dude's smart. Uh-uh, that does you no good and does me no good. All I'm telling you is this is what dad's been saying. You need to go talk to him. If a prophet comes forward and says, thus saith the Lord to you, and they're right. And you go, oh my gosh, that guy's a man of God. I need to follow him. No. No. 
All he's saying is, I was talking to dad. He said he hadn't talked to you in a while, and he wants to talk to you about this. I don't know if it makes any sense to you. That's all I'm doing. It's not to elevate this guy's status. It's for you to say, oh, my gosh, my dad's trying to get my attention. You have to talk to your heavenly father without any other mediator, without a minister, without a pastor, without a church leader, you go straight to him. You take the Bible that you have been blessed and privileged to have in your hands and you go talk to him. Will I help pray for you? Absolutely. Will I look out for you? Absolutely. Will the people in the church, will they, will they um, try to teach you more about the, the culture and the history and everything so you understand more about uh, the, the, the shoulders of the people we stand on? Absolutely. But is that to tie you to me or to RCC? No, it is to strengthen your tie to your heavenly father. Read your Bible and pray doesn't mean fulfill the religious checklist. It means you need to go talk to dad. All I am is your older brother. To some of you. Some of y'all, I'm your younger brother. And I'm still here to tell you, hey, you need to go talk to dad. So, how did we get through all of this corruption, through all this power, through all this manipulation, through all this blending of, of consolidating power between the church and the state? You still have a Bible in English, even though there were laws threatening to murder people who translated it or possessed a translation. How do you still have it? Number two in your notes, how do we get the English Bible? The next line after that is, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to William Tyndale. Chances are, if you go home and look at your physical copy of the Bible on the binding, you will see somewhere the name Tyndale. If you open it up and look at the people who get credit for the, uh, for the Bible or work, the translations they use to try to get it into English, you'll see his name a lion's share of the time in your physical Bible. Because this man, this man followed the direction of God, and because of his obedience, all of us have a Bible. William Tyndale, he got saved at a very young age, became enamored with the idea of theology and studying about God, because that's all theology means, is the study of God. He went... Uh, after he you know, grew up, he went to university. He spent 10 years, 10 years studying theology. He went to Oxford and Cambridge. Pretty legit schools. Got his bachelor's from one, his master's from the other. And as he was going through his study, you start being able to understand what the Bible says, and then you start thinking about to all those little messages you heard as a kid and all of a sudden these things don't really match up anymore because these guys were twisting it to their own benefit knowing you couldn't read it but now that you could get inside and understand it yourself ooh, you start seeing where the contradictions are so he openly criticizes the idea that you shouldn't be able to have a bible in your language he gets critical of that and so he did whatever, what every uh, 
rambunctious, late 20-something-year-old young man would do. He decides to go and challenge the leadership of the church and try to get permission to translate the Bible in English. Why did he think he could do it? Because he spoke eight languages fluently. Eight. Now look, I am an American Southern redneck, right? My people have some kind of beer in one hand, a rifle in the other, an American flag tattooed across their chest or, or airbrushed on their truck somewhere, right? Like, yeehaw, those are my people where I come from, right? That's those guys. Those guys talk, they talk like this. How are you? Good night. You know, they just say all kinds of stuff like that. <laughs> I can't believe it. You know, they have all this, the weird redneck stuff. I do that so well that does anybody doubt that those are my people where I grew up? No, because you understand that I'm talking that way. I came out of the belly of the south, out here to the west, and I was introduced to Polynesians. Beautiful. Caramel, mocha skin, vowel-laden language. I married into them. And people started teaching me the language. I can't repeat the first 15 words I learned because somebody thought it would be funny to teach the minister guy all the bad words. <laughs> They'll have some anger over that that I'm dealing with. But then I started learning little things to say and all the Polynesians in the house know that if I say, if I, I'm going to butcher a statement from the Polynesians, right? Like, it, if I say, if I say a, a phrase like, Ote alofa iateoi. Now, all the, the Samoans would be like, hilarious, bro. You just redneckified our language, right? When you heard that, all the Polys in the house would be like, oh, that's cute, but you've never been to the island, have you? I'm like, no. That was not Tyndale's problem. Tyndale was so good at speaking the languages, unlike what I just did and butchered the Samoan language, so apologies. Um, he was so good at speaking the language, you thought he was from the place of the language he was speaking. When he spoke Greek, people thought, oh, this dude, he was born and raised in Greece. When he spoke Hebrew, People thought he lived in Israel and was a Jew. Every language he spoke, he didn't just understand it. He knew the dialect. He knew the, the inflection of the voice, how it needed to be presented, the cadence of the words. And no one could tell that he was English, uh, at first an English speaker, because he was so good at his language. Dude was brilliant. So what does he do? Goes and sees... Next on your notes, Tyndale moved to London in 1523 and asked the Bishop of London for permission to translate the Bible into English. Now, think about this for a second. The Bishop of London, the one bishop who oversaw every church in London. Imagine for a second that there was one guy over every church in Phoenix. One guy, and you didn't know what the Bible said, all you could do was take all these words, and if you had any question, 
about what your minister or pastor or priest was doing, you had to go book an appointment with that guy downtown somewhere, wherever his headquarters is, and then you had to bring your complaint and ask your question about what was going on. Do you think he was going to be honest with the commoner? Do you think as the Bishop of London, he didn't know the backroom deals that were going on between the church leadership and the government? You think he wasn't privy to the inside scoop, the, the dirt that was happening, that was burdening all the people? Of course he knew. But he saw a passionate young man in Tinsdale who was asking permission to translate the Bible because he just wanted people to know God's word. And so he denied his request but didn't arrest him. Let him go. Because he saw, he saw that his intentions were, were pure to give the Bible to people. And as they continued to tell him no on his request to translate the Bible, Tinsdale's quoted in saying, If God will give me the days in my life, I will make sure the kid who's pushing a plow in a field knows more scripture than the priest who's teaching it now. I don't know about you, but the cultural idea of Christianity is like super sissified. I'm sorry if that's an old word. It's pansy, right? You have to be, oh, bless you. Back to where you came from, right? This dude, he's like, hey, you're not gonna you're gonna try to put an obstacle in front of me to fulfill what God's told me to do. He's directing me to do to free the countrymen from my own countrymen of the bonds of power and the lust for power that you have that is overshadowing and tainting the gospel. Bro, watch what I'm about to do. This dude was a man. I would have loved him. I'd have dapped him up right there. Like, Let's go, man. Where are we going? So what does this obedient young man of God do after he's denied being able to translate the Bible into English? He does something I would have done. At least I hope I would have, because this is awesome. Next on your notes, Tyndale moved to Germany and completed the English version of the New Testament anyway in 1525. You're not going to let me do it here? You're going to keep us under lock and key? I'm going to move across the rest of the Atlantic here, into Europe, into Germany, and I'm going to do it anyway. The printing press was invented before he was on the scene, and so he scrounges up enough money to start printing off copies of his English translation of the Bible. Then he decides he wants to figure out a way to get it back to his countrymen, so... He begins to smuggle Bibles into his nation. Church kid, university student, scholar, language expert, rebel translator, smuggler. Natural progression, right? Like he, in one instance, he took these giant wooden barrels and pushed, uh, uh, filled them up with straw and hid the Bibles in there, and they made it through the ports. And on the other side, he had people waiting to help him, and he began to distribute all of the Bibles in English to the common people outside of the church's knowledge. Now, 
There was one more problem. The vast majority of the people couldn't read or write. Can we just stop for a second? Can you read or write today? My seven-year-old nephew came home from first grade and was talking to me about how many days are in the week and writing his name and all this kind of stuff. He's reading things. I got him this book off of the shelf, and he starts reading it. That kid, that seven-year-old, my nine-year-old niece who just finished third grade, who is knocking out these books left and right, reading, writing, all that kind of stuff. You got grown men who are out in the fields raising families who can't read or write. Their women, their children, their wives, they can't read or write. But they found a handful of people who were believers in Christ who could read. And they started meeting together. Next line in your notes. During that period, most of the people in England could not read or write, but would gather together in secret, in secret, to have those who were literate read Scripture out loud. All right, so think about this in this context real quick. There's a Bible that's been smuggled in. It's in English. They make it to somebody's house. And this person, they can read, and so everybody gathers there on a Tuesday night. And he opens up the Bible, and he begins to read the Bible to them in their own language. When you start having the unedited, unfiltered, undoctored, uncorrupted word of God laid out in front of you, you start having little thoughts about, wait a minute, you just read Romans and says you can't do all these things, but we just had a teaching on Romans a couple weeks ago at the church, and he said that the church leaders could do these things. What is going on here? And the same way that Tinsdale went and studied theology and realized that there was these big discrepancies, the people, the common people who were under the heavy burden placed on them by the church leaders and the government start to realize we've been lied to. And the system of control begins to crack. The stranglehold that they had around the necks of the common people begins to loosen because people start going back and going, hey, bro, I know what that passage really says. It does not say that. Next on your notes, this led to the people realizing the Catholic priests taught them unscriptural ideas. <clears throat> this was not going to go on without a big fight. So remember the Bishop of London we just talked about, who Tinsdale went and asked permission to translate, and he said no. Word got back to him that people were having English translations in their home, and people were reading the English translation of the Bible out loud to each other. They were starting to figure out what was really going on, and so instead of having a moment of humility and conviction, where the church leaders could have said, you know what? We should have done this the whole time and embracing it and just going with it. Instead of doing that, the Bishop of London comes through and says, we're going to do something about this. Tinsdale and a bunch of people had some money and 
went and printed 6,000 more copies of the New Testament and were having them smuggled in, but these church leaders were well-connected. And the Bishop of, of London made a contact with one of the guys who was selling all of those Bibles and helping them get in. He was a merchant. The Bishop of London came to that man and said, hey, how many, how many of those English Bibles are coming in here? And he said, about 6,000. He said, okay, I'll, I will purchase every one of them from you. And he bought every one of them. And then, in a profound statement of arrogance, he took all 6,000 Bibles and dumped them on the steps of the great St. Paul Cathedral and lit them on fire. Publicly, in a massive display of power. If you're a common person in England during that time, and you heard about these Bibles that were going around in the English language in the, the New Testament, and there are 6,000 copies. What are those? Those are the New Testaments in English? They found them? Yeah, and they put them on the steps and they're burning them? What message is the church, are the church leaders sending to the common people? Anybody? They don't want you to learn? What else? Yep, try to discourage them, right? You make a bunch of them, we're going to capture them and burn them. Yep. What else are they communicating? Anybody else? What are you thinking if you're in that scenario? These dudes are not of God? In essence, what they're saying is if you want to go through God, you want to get to God, you got to go through me. We are your new mediator. You want to talk to him? You got to come to the doors of my church. You want to know what he says? You got to come and talk to my priest. You want to think on your own? No, 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 sir. You don't have the ability to do that. You have to come to me. You know what that sounds like? A lot like the Pharisees Jesus rebuked in the New Testament. Y'all have put these massive burdens on these people, and you try to follow these laws to the letter, but you miss out on everything because your heart is corrupt. The king during that time was Henry VIII. He was working in cahoots with these church leaders so that they could try to head off at the pass where these Bibles were coming from, and so... In true form fashion, when you get the government involved, they started hiring people undercover to try to figure out who in the world is William Tinsdale and where is he at. He refused to let anyone draw a portrait of him in his life because it would identify him to other people. Any portrait that you find online is a an idea of from what his friends said he, he looked like in close resemblance, but it was never made of him directly. During their undercover operation, the church's undercover operation 
You want to talk about some mobster, Scarface, Sopranos, you know, Godfather type stuff. These guys have people willing to rat you out and kill you if necessary. Looking for William Tyndale. And while they look for him, they start running across some people who are his friends. Oh, you're a friend of Tyndale. And they arrested them. Gave them an opportunity to tell him where he was. Before they put them to death. Anyone who stood against the church was considered a heretic and you had a heretic's death which was burning you at the stake alive they took a giant wooden pole and banged it into the ground and then took chains and put people on the pole and then put the firewood at the base of this area and gave you an opportunity give him up or die and not one of his friends gave him up they did these executions in public to intimidate people the death of a heretic burned alive at the stake children grew up without parents because these people realized the importance of being able to have God's word in your hands. In 1530, Henry VIII decided to make a massive push to eliminate all of the Bibles, and he was wildly successful because, depending on what scholar you read, they say there was between 18 to 20,000 of these Bibles, these English translated Bibles. And he got all of them except two. There are only two in existence that were known to have escaped. I'm going to have Jules put this slide up. This is one of them. The Bible's pages were about the size of your hand. It was really, really thick. And that really thick Bible he has there with illustrations involved in it to try to help understand, help people understand what they're reading even more. And that's only the New Testament. A museum in London purchased one of those for an undisclosed amount of money. And it's on display today there because of the impact of William Tyndale. They were not having very much success capturing him. So they employed the services of a man named Henry Phillips who had gambled away his fortune. And the reason that's important is because if you got involved with a, a manhunt to try to find one of these heretics, one of these guys that were doing illegal things, when, they, when he was arrested, they took all of his property, all of his money, and gave you half of it. So to enrich himself, to get back everything he lost in his gambling debts, he eventually found William Tinsdale and became a 
friend to him, swore to him that he would keep his identity secret, and then sold them out to the church. Sold him out to the church. William Tyndale was arrested, but not before he also translated the entire Old Testament into English. He sat in prison for 16 to 18 months because there was no such thing in England as a right of a speedy trial. They had a sham trial where three crooked judges were bought off by the church and the government to convict Tyndale no matter what. And they convicted him of these crimes as a heretic. as they led him to his public execution, they decided, well, he is a heretic, so he needs to die a heretic's death, but he was a scholar, real brilliant guy. So before we burn him at the stake, we'll just strangle him to death. So when they took him to the pole, where they were gonna light him on fire so that you could have a Bible, They drilled a hole in it and put a chain around his neck and put the two ends of the chain through the hole and somebody stood on the other end of it and gave him one last chance to recant, repent, and pledge his allegiance back to the church and to the government. And with his last dying breath, he said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And they strangled him to death publicly and burned his body in front of a massive crowd. There's a painting that hangs in a museum in London of him holding a Bible. There's a statement underneath that they think is from him, and it says, To scatter Roman darkness by this light, the loss of land and life I reckon slight. To shine a light on the deep, dark corruption of the government, Roman government influenced church that was wildly corrupt through the light of the truth of the gospel, putting it in the common man's hand. If that costs me everything I own and even my life's breath, it is a little price to pay for people to have the true message of Christ. Three years later, for a reason that I have not been able to figure out yet, King Henry is approached by more men, a group of men this time who said, hey, probably time to give the people their English translation of the Bible. And whether he did it for his own gain, whether it was a moment of conviction or whatever, I don't know. Three years later, God answered Tyndale's last prayer. He removed the law, making it illegal to own, and actually commanded the Catholic Church to purchase one Bible for every church house to be present. They tried again to be 
corrupt and adjust little things in the Bible here and there to try to keep their control over it. And once Henry VIII died, a new king was put into place, a young man named King James, who up until that time gathered the largest, most trusted number of scholars and language experts together to translate the English Bible again, this time correctly, without any influence of the church. Just say what it says. The last line in your notes, more than 80% of the King James Bible that they came up with directly quotes Tensdale's translation. Some places give him credit for almost 90%. 80 to 90% of the authentic English Bible that was translated came from his efforts. To be honest, I had a different ending for this message. I wanted to talk about all the people who were then influenced by the English Bible. There's a man who wrote a book on Shakespeare who first thought that he was the most iconic person in English literature and then realized Shakespeare studied Tyndale. All of his writings, including the English Bible. And now William Shakespeare is considered the second greatest English literary person next to another William, Tyndale. I wanted to sit here and tell you how two-thirds of all Nobel Peace Prize winners are confessing Christians. I wanted to sit here and tell you about the quotes of Galileo, Isaac Newton, the experts in biomechanical engineering today, quantum physicists, quantum mathematics, all of these people who are these wildly, astoundingly brilliant people who study the Bible. The Bible cannot err. It is inspired. I study this every day. I wanted to do like a little like inspiring thing where we could be like, look at all these people and look, who are inspired by the English Bible and we need to be inspired too. I could do it. You can show that next slide, Jules. On the left is Tyndale's Bible page. On the right is a 1611 that used all of his, the 80 to 90% of his translation for their Bible. I sat there and stared at the covers of these Bibles and thought, How dare I try to be cute? How dare I leave with the feel good? How dare I? The greatest obstacle, Tyndale, and all of the people under the thumb of control of the government and the Roman Catholic Church. All of those people's greatest obstacle to consuming God's word was persecution and death. 
And here we sit 500 years later, and our greatest obstacle is our own apathy. Indifference. I'll do it tomorrow, Matt. I know it's on the counter, but it's been a long day. I know I'm supposed to, but just need to rest a little bit. All valid arguments, all things that have come out of my own mouth. But how can Tyndale stare down the mafia style strong arming of a corrupt church and government enterprise and give his life so that you and I could hold God's word in our hand by ourselves. You know what moving from London to Germany looked like with no airplanes, no cars, no technology, no mechanical anything? Two years of translating just the New Testament. He sat there, made sure no one could see what he was doing. How much isolation did he endure? How many late nights by a candle was he sitting there trying to write? How many times did he have to go back and start over an entire page because he screwed up on the last word or the last couple of words on that page? How many tireless nights? How many hand cramps? How many frustrations did he go through? How much of all of that literal isolation and pain did he endure so I could look at my Bible and be like, nah, I think Netflix. His greatest obstacle was death and mine was convenience. I couldn't end the message of being cute. Matt, these are normally a little bit nicer endings to these messages. Mm -hmm. But only 37% of the people that are standing behind the pulpit in this country in a Christian church in the last study that I talked about last week, only 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. Which means that they're looking at the Bible too and going, later. Just give me a verse and I'll figure out a way to make it mean something and inspire you and we'll shout and holler and the music will be awesome and loud and then we'll go out and not be any different. There's moments I'm tempted to do that, honestly. But the thought of Tyndale choking for air with a chain around his neck, the thought of his friends screaming for their lives being burned at the stake as heretics, 
the fact that nobody when I was growing up in the church told me any of this. Won't let me be cute. If you feel conviction right now, good. Because I sure did. If you feel condemnation, like Matt's trying to knock you into place, different. We stand on the shoulders of giant men of faith. And we are privileged beyond words to not only have the Bible in our possession, but not live in a place where laws are enacted that prevent you from it. Tomorrow we celebrate those who died to protect that freedom in you. But what you'll find when you look throughout history is that apathy eventually leads to bondage. If we don't care, someone's going to step in. We'll lose the right. And then we'll wish we wouldn't have to spill blood to consume God's word. I don't wish problems. I don't wish persecution. I don't wish hard times on anybody. But I wonder if a little bit of hardship would reignite the appreciation, the respect for God's word that our culture desperately lacks. Well, I have an entire four-week, one-month series that talk about the origins and the validity and the clarity of God's word because my friends we desperately need it for God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life God also so loved you and me and he called men to give their lives so I could have a Bible. So I could hear the unfiltered, unfettered, uncorrupted word of God for myself. If you leave here with a conviction, great. If you appease that conviction by ignoring it, That's not great. If conviction doesn't lead us to change, my friends, we will eventually lose the gift we've been given. Matt, you don't understand, bro. I, I used to read the Bible quite a bit, and I don't really understand it. I understand. I get that. Write your questions down and call me, and we'll go through them. And if I don't know the answer, I'll go through it with you, and we'll figure it out together. 
Matt, you don't understand. I don't want to be one of those guys, you know what I mean? The so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good, no such thing. What you don't want to be is the caricature that the culture paints in our mind. The fluffy guy, the, the girl who just says the Christian things and never lives any different and just goes on about their life and doesn't really show any care but says, I'll pray for you, sister. But if you really read the words that are in that book, men, there's no way you don't become a man. There's no way you don't become the best father, the best husband, the best person. You sit there with the God's word, women, you tell me that I have not met one person who really legitimately sat down with God's word and pursued it, consumed it, and went after him, and then went, didn't do anything for me. Why? Because we learn what he wants through his word and his spirit causes revelation to happen in our head and heart through his word. Are we elevating the Bible of G above Jesus? No. It's not faith in God's word, it's faith in Jesus. But do we have his word so you know how to pursue him? I laid it on thick tonight on purpose because we have to draw a line in the sand today and commit to Scripture. I don't want apathy to be my legacy. I don't think you do either. Matt, it's been a long time since I cracked open God's word. It's been a long time since I sat down and prayed and opened the Bible next to me. And I'm worried about that because whew, I feel like I'm going to get a spanking from God, some spiritual correction. Every time that's happened to me, he's never given me the sense of where have you been? And there's been long periods of time in my own life in the ministry where I wasn't spending quality time with him or opening his word. Every time I went back afraid, he'd never condemned me. He didn't say, where have you been? He said, there you are. And he'll do the same for you.